welcome to this lunchtime lecture on gender and climate change. Why are women at more risk from global heating? My name is Karen Levy. I'm from the UCL Development Planning Unit, um, and I'll be chairing this lunchtime session, which is part of UCL's climate campaign, Generation One. Um, the vision behind Generation One is that together we are the new generation taking responsible, responsibility for climate change and turning science into actionable ideas to contribute to creating a positive, fair and progressive future. And you're very welcome to join the various activities of Generation One. It's very easy. Um, at least let me just mention the two, two ways. You can pledge your climate action which you can find out more about on, on, on the Generation One UCL website. Um, and through pledging your action, hopefully inspire others by, by, uh, to share uh, through social media, through tweeting, etc. Um, please also check out the new Generation One podcast. It's a really interesting podcast series, again, on the UCL Generation One website. So for this session today on gender and climate change, why are women more at, at, at more risk from global heating? I'd like to welcome our three speakers for today, really interesting and provocative set of issues that they're going to raise for us today. Uh, our first speaker will be Dr. Virginie Lemasson, who is uh, one of the co-directors of the Center for Gender and Disaster within UCL's Institute for Risk and, and disaster, disaster Reduction. Her research looks at gender inequalities and violence related to risks in places affected by environmental change and disasters. Um, our second speaker will be Dr. Priti Parikh. Uh, Priti heads the engineering for International Development Center in, at the Bartlett School of Sustainable Construction, which researches inclusive and sustainable infrastructure solutions in resource-challenged settings. And our third speaker is Dr. Jordana Romalo, a lecturer in, the develop, in, in development planning for diversity at the Bartlett Development Planning Unit. Um, and her research explores the socio-spatial political ecologies of disaster uh, risk management, resilience building, and urban development. Folks, we're going to have some time for questions at the end of the session, but do keep your questions rolling through the session. I think that really will help our speakers also perhaps uh, sometimes respond directly to some of those questions. We're using Slido as a mechanism for, for channeling the questions. You can go there, uh, uh, connect in, on sli.do and enter the event code uh, hashtag UCL climate. So folks, I'd like to pass over to our first speaker, uh, Dr. Virginie Lemasson, whose presentation will discuss how violence against women and girls undermines their resilience to climate risk. Over to you, Virginie. Thank you very much, Karen, for the introduction, and thank you for the opportunity to take part in this uh, lunch series. Can I just check that you can see my slide 
um, my screen, yes. Okay, perfect. So normally I do an hour long lecture on the intersection between um, climate change, gender inequalities and health. Um, but by way of introduction, I'm gonna focus the next 15 minutes on trying to deconstruct a little bit uh, the main question that was asked to us, the, the panel speakers. And I want to ask further, when we talk about women, what women do we refer to? I also want to further ask, uh, who do we consider to compare to whom? And also what we mean by uh, risk and global heating of related risks. So these three questions are gonna frame my, my 15 minute presentation. And starting with the first question, what women are we talking about? Here, um, I want to mention that um, most of the literature on gender and climate change has been predominantly focusing on um, the, uh, the way and the experiences of women from the global south, the so-called global south, and how they're experiencing the, the environment and environmental shifts. This has been largely driven by the literature for the past 20 years, but also from the learning of non-governmental non NGOs and the interventions that they are operating in um, places affected by climate change. On the one hand side, this has been useful to make visible the experiences of, of women, um, especially that uh, their practical needs, their strategic interests and to be overlooked by humanitarian and development actions. So this has been useful to target uh, their interest a bit more and, and document also their experiences. We also know that in many parts of um, the world affected by recurring droughts, particularly in fragile states, female-headed households are likely to be considered food insecure as compared to male-headed households. And this has to do with lots of different coping mechanisms that are more available to men, such as migration, for example. Including in my own research, I, I can share many examples where uh, taking a gender perspective helped to understand how people will be differently affected by similar environmental shifts. And one of the uh, research projects that I'm involved in uh, is funded by UKRI, and it look, it's looking at the way seaweed farmers are coping with environment, environmental shifts in three different countries, including Tanzania. And in Tanzania, we found that um, seaweed farmers are uh, having to cope with a decrease of their yields due to the global warming temperature. And this is increasing the likelihood of pests and pathogens to affect their seaweed crops. As a result, they have less seaweed production and some of the coping mechanism and strategies that could help them avoid those risks uh, include, for example, moving their farms to deeper water where the water is cooler. But this strategy is unavailable for women because they have never been taught how to swim, for example, but also because they have fewer opportunities to access equipment such as boats uh, compared to men. So this is just an example of how some people living in the same place may have different ways to deal with risk according to their social identities. But having said that, I also want to um, bring here a caveat in the fact that sometimes a gender perspective is not enough and in the similar places affected by similar risk, some communities will not have the same capacities to deal with, with risk. And here I want to bring the example of um, 
two very different communities living in the same place in the Western Cape in South Africa. And you probably have heard before um, that uh, Cape Tonians had to prepare for day zero. That was three, three years ago now. And I was living in Cape Town at the time um, and they had to, to prepare for the day the city would cut water supply just because there was not enough water in the dams surrounding the city. But in facing those water restrictions, obviously some communities were not um, able to cope in the same ways and others were far more affluent to, to deal with the stress. And this was largely uh, influenced by other aspects than gender inequalities, particularly racial inequalities and the geographical segregation uh, that still exists. So similar to unpacking a little bit what we mean by women, I want to also ask the question, who do we compare women to? Um, obviously men can also be exposed and suffer from uh, heat related illnesses or heat risks, uh, not just women. And it largely depends uh, in which context and also uh, depending who do we uh, include. It also raises this importance that it's not related uh, necessarily to biological differences, but largely to occupations and, and gender roles. So when looking at the literature, particularly from uh, what quantitative studies say around um, potentially this uh, this increased exposure of women to heat-related illness. I didn't find a consensus uh, in the literature that suggests that this is the case. Um, for example, one meta-analysis of the literature um, suggested that actually there was no concluding evidence that women may be more uh, exposed to heat illnesses, but they are, there is other uh, research that suggests that it's actually the case, for example, with research in France, um, uh, related to six different heat waves between 1971 and 2003 that show that uh, women were uh, facing higher mortality ratios compared to men. Similar findings in Finland, where women, particularly the elderly above 75 years old, were more likely to, to die as a result from, from uh, heat waves. But because we don't really have a consensus and especially when looking at those quantitative study, they all suggested that there could be um, explanation related to people's roles and, and behaviors. This is where qualitative research is really important to give us a little bit of insight into understanding how people are differently affected by global warming. Um, there is research in, in Australia um, following bushfires that suggest that men are more likely to die from bushfires, li largely due to their um, tendency to stay behind to protect their houses and assets. And so this risk behavior tends to lead to higher mortality rates for men compared to women's. Similarly, in terms of uh, mental health in relation to disasters, both genders uh, are affected by increased um, mental health issues, but uh, evidence suggests that uh, men in particular are disproportionately likely to commit suicide following a disaster with evidence from, from farmers in India. So to conclude on, the, on, on this point that I wanted to make, and you may be familiar with the gender unicorn, it's to suggest that gender does not equal women. And this has to be constantly reaffirmed because um, 
the, the binary between men and women is not helpful anymore to draw a nuanced picture on how climate change affects people differently. And an intersectional approach is really necessary both to understand um, people's social identities in terms of their gender identities, um, gender expression, sexual orientation, beyond sex characteristics, but also the other social identities that um, will influence their vulnerability and capacities related to their age, their ethnic uh, origins, uh, class, et cetera, et cetera. The last point I wanted to, to make is to deconstruct a little bit what we mean by, by risks and global heating, especially. We have on the one side the, the scientific evidence on um, the future impact of climate change. And I'm referring here to the summary for policymakers of the latest IPCC report uh, that came out this year. And what this report shows is that um, changes will include not only um, heat waves, but also an increase in the frequency of hot extremes, marine heat wave, heavy precipitation, and in some regions, agricultural and ecological droughts, but also an increase in the proportion of intense tropical cyclone, as well as reductions in Arctic sea ice, snow cover, and permafrost. So these will generate very different risks that will have very different impacts according to the regions, but also according to the vulnerability of societal settings exposed to these impacts. So this is the, the flip side of, of looking at the issue of gender climate change, it's to move away from the focus on uh, natural hazards and looking at the factors that make some, certain people more likely to suffer from, from climate change. And the particular aspect that I'm interested in is the impact of gender-based violence that occurs regardless of climate change. But it does, uh, evidence suggests that it does increase in times of stress and, and disasters. So there is a lot of evidence, for, for example, from Australia and New Zealand that should suggest that men are likely to um, face frustration following um, droughts, bushfires, the, the loss of the livestock and the main uh, livelihoods. And this is translating into backlash against their own family members, particularly domestic violence. And what research has shown, particularly from Deborah Parkinson, for example, in Australia, is that not only is domestic violence increasing during disasters such as bushfires, but also um, it's less likely to be reported in communities who do not want to hear about this hidden disaster. And in my own research, I've been trying to focus on this influence of, of violence against women and girls um, and the influence on their resilience capacities to deal with the other risks that they face on a daily basis. And one way to, to summarize um, this research, if I can in, in one slide, is to, to emphasize that um, women and girls on average are the primary victims of, of intimate partner violence. And this has an effect on all aspects of their lives and well-being from early pregnancies to domestic violence to suffering health consequences of female genital mutilation. And this influences the other aspects of, of their personal development from uh, lack of access to knowledge, school, uh, lack of opportunities for income generation uh, activities, lack of social justice and accountability and so on and so forth. And all of these elements contribute to create um, societies and contexts that are less 
able to cope with the intersection of different risks, including climate change. And so the idea here is to um, re-center global heating, global warming or climate change into a broader context of intersecting risk uh, related to societal um, development pathways and often unsustainable pathways. So I will leave you with this. Uh, these are some of my references and I look forward to hearing more about the other speakers. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Virginie, uh, for a really uh, great start to this lunchtime session. Um, folks, I'm sure you have many, many questions after that presentation. Do remember, go to Slido, sli.do, enter the event code, hashtag UCL Climate, and hopefully we're going to have some space at the end to pick up some of those questions. So I'd like to move on to our second speaker, Priti um, Parikh. Uh, her presentation will look at how women bear the burden of lack of infrastructure and how climate change further exacerbates this inequality. So over to you, Priti. So delighted to be here today. It's such a pleasure. Um, and um, I was privileged enough to represent UCL, UCL at COP26. And um, being trained as an engineer, a lot of thinking and research we do in my research center is around the implications of lack of infrastructure and the burden that presents, uh, the lack of infrastructure presents to everyone, but in particular uh, women. So that's going to be really the thrust of emphasis of my talk today, the intersection of climate change and infrastructure and how women really bear the burden of both. But before I do so, I wanted to set a bit of context and this might be something well known to you or not, but there is a huge injustice or lack of equity where the richest 10% of, of the population on this planet is responsible for almost half of the total lifestyle emissions. Um, and vice versa, the poorest 50% of population is only responsible for 10% of lifestyle consumption emissions. And this is challenging and problematic because within the 50% of population, there will be a need to provide improved housing and infrastructure to improve their living conditions, to offer them a decent quality of life. But the implication of that could be um, for more emissions. And this leads to the debate of how can we then address climate change concerns? How can we meet net zero targets? And if we look at the composition of breakdown of nations, uh, you will see that predominantly the high emitters are in the global north and the low emitters are in the global south. If you were to put them on a map, you can very clearly distinctly see the divide where the per capita, so the per person emissions, is lower in the global south. But that by itself is not the full picture because those are the pockets, the locations which will have lower GDP and incomes. Those are the locations and pockets which are most vulnerable to climate change and have a higher risk. So whether it's South Africa, whether it's India, Bangladesh, or Kenya. So even though the even though populations there are emit less, they suffer the most or bear the burden of climate change-related impacts. And within that, you'll see that a large proportion of population lives in what we call slums, informal settlements, so communities with very poor environmental conditions, infrastructure, and housing stock. So now, in effect, you've got people who consume very little, uh, contribute very little to the climate change, but really are 
um, really suffer from the adverse impacts. And within that subgroup, it is women who suffer the most because they are the ones who take responsibility leadership for meeting infrastructure needs of households. And I've worked extensively in the settings of slums and formal settlements. And if you were to take any city, I mean, this is an example of a city in India, but if you were to take cities and map out where the slums are located, you'll find that predominantly slums are located near water bodies and natural drainage paths, which in a way makes sense because a lot of those locations are close to water bodies. It provides easy access to water, uh, means of disposing waste, which are easy. And quite often the land along drainage paths and rivers, um, they belong to governments, um, very little kind of real estate development. So it makes sense intuitively that those pockets are located near drainage paths, but in a way that is also problematic because those pockets therefore are more vulnerable to climate related events, especially events such as flooding. So you have the situation uh, where residents, especially women who are already struggling in their day-to-day -day lives to access infrastructure are then subject to the adverse impacts of uh, climate change. And if we dig a bit deeper into those day-to-day -day lived experiences, women are the ones who spend time collecting water. So they on an average spend an hour or two hours a day collecting water. Uh, in my work in India, I asked 100 households in five slums in India, what would the women do if they um, saved the time of water collection? And the responses ranged from housework to income generation, childcare, um, education, and leisure. And this has a huge implication on quality of life and progression and growth, because if this time is freed up for women, um, they can use it, especially for sending children to school, uh, improving educational outcomes. What is more problematic, though, is the lack of sanitation services. And in settings where women are dependent on public toilets, it's simply not a convenient solution at times. There's a lack of safety, lack of dignity, inconvenient fights, bad health, um, the toilets are not maintained. And on top of that, if there's flooding, it's extremely hard to access those facilities, very basic facilities. So you have this setting um, in the global south where everyone is fighting for basic infrastructure and everyone is fighting for survival, but you have a subgroup which is most adversely impacted. This is a study we did in Mumbai in Dharavi slum, uh, where we asked respondents, and this was a study which is really focused on different typologies of public toilets and women's day-to-day -day lived experiences of using those facilities. And as you can see, um, and this was a study in two different settlements, Dharavi and Nerunagar in Mumbai. And as you can see that women had, that were subject to violence, whether it was eve teasing or assault or robbery or rape, um, so there are other added layers or barriers to accessing very basic services in those settings. In terms of mitigation measures, some of the measures were kind of more physical or engineering oriented measures, such as providing better access routes and lighting and better cleaning of toilets. But of course, in order to address some of those solutions, you need to think about uh, kind of climate and climate resilient solutions. 
we move into the field of electricity and clean cooking, this is an area which is extremely challenging. And we work with uh, remote rural communities in Sub-Saharan Africa, where uh, we're trying to understand how people use electricity and clean cooking solutions. And we are finding that progression to clean energy, so uh, clean energy transition pathways are not straightforward. In reality, households practice fuel stacking where they use a combination of clean and polluting fuels. There's this assumption that uh, if you provide clean tech, there's going to be this linear upward progression. But depending on financial circumstances and shocks and stresses to the systems, we find that quite often households move down this ladder um, to using more polluting fuels. Examples include COVID, where uh, due to loss of jobs, households did not have disposable income and they moved back to using uh, polluting fuels like wood, which has an implication in terms of time burden for women, but also exposure to indoor air pollution. So in effect, the assumption that clean technology by itself is going to address the climate agenda is uh, therefore not valid. You need a combination of technical approaches, but also social influencing social cultural barriers to address the climate agenda. And infrastructure is a very powerful tool or weapon here, because what infrastructure does, it shifts needs and aspirations. So in this graph, uh, the blue line shows community needs and aspirations before they had access to basic infrastructure. And the red line shows aspirations and needs after they had access to basic infrastructure services. So in effect, what infrastructure does, it shifts communities from survival for fighting for basic needs to thinking about higher order needs and aspirations which lead to improvement in quality of life. So infrastructure can act as a lever uh, to do so. And infrastructure opens up opportunities for improving environment, improving housing stock and living conditions, uh, which is required uh, for addressing climate change agenda because we want communities to have good quality of life, but do it in a way where you have solutions which are climate friendly. And what we found in our work in India is communities invested around $2,000 to $3,000 to improve their housing stock on the back of infrastructure improvements. And the motivation predominantly for this investment was better infrastructure. And what happens is, as a result of this, there's kind of empowerment, there's dignity, uh, there's access to opportunities and opportunities uh, for everyone to be engaged in the city. And a lot of work we do is evidencing why infrastructure is important for meeting sustainable development goals. And we do, um, we do very structured reviews. For instance, we, um, the group of colleagues, an interdisciplinary team at University College London, we reviewed over 600 publications to demonstrate that sanitation is non-negotiable to address the sustainable development goals. So if you take action in sanitation, it benefits 130 out of the 169 targets, and it includes all 17 goals, including climate partnerships, um, equity, health, well-being, poverty, education. And particularly for climate change, it is important to kind of leverage those benefits and synergies because what good sanitation solutions can do is to safeguard water systems to protect the environment, to reduce uh, transmission of disease contamination and foster kind of climate adaptation interventions and solutions. Bearing in mind that the solutions we provide 
as designers, we need to consider the trade-offs. So it could be that we provide flush toilets, more flush toilets, but the implication of that could be that uh, we are using more water in water scarce areas. And that's really the intersection of climate change, where if you have water scarcity, what type of infrastructure solutions can you provide to benefit all, and in particular, uh, women? Uh, we, we're currently working with UNICEF on articulating uh, the implications of climate uh, for children, but also looking at the gender dimension of climate change. And um, there are multiple examples in a presented view here where uh, the impact of climate change would be an increase in disease. And the gender dimension here is the majority of women act as caregivers or frontline workers, but quite often women lack access to healthcare services. Water scarcity, the big implication is women have to walk longer distances, and there's a time burden for women. In terms of water quality, um, there's higher levels of exposure for women, especially if they are the ones uh, collecting water. Extreme weather events such as flood especially means uh, there could be some gender norms around this or lack of ability of women to swim and to evacuate safely or go out alone. So there could be a range of gender norms here which influence behaviors and choices. Um, when rural communities migrate to cities, um, it is the women who are more vulnerable to violence, harassment, and loss of privacy. Um, in agricultural sector, uh, we see feminization of um, agriculture, for example. So when it comes to income generation, women are the ones often who are most adversely affected. And similarly, when it comes to nutrition and um, stunting, um, it is women and the girl child who are more adversely affected. But overall, um, a lack of infrastructure with the intersection of climate-related impacts means there's an increased time burden, especially for women, and anxiety um, and stress for women and girls. I want to conclude with this visual because this shows that there's still a lot of work to be done around improving living conditions, providing access to very basic services, whether it's water, whether it's sanitation, whether it's electricity or clean cooking fuels. And for that, we will need to think of climate adaptation plans, which are just, which are well-resourced and which respond to needs of those communities and in particular women and the girl child. Um, but in doing so, it's interesting being part of COP because I could see that there's kind of this tension um, between the need and aspiration to very quickly reach net zero targets on one hand, and the need and demand for more investment in improving quality of life. So this is the image I would like to leave you with, and kind of this conflict between uh, developing and developing nations on climate justice. Thank you. Thank you so much, Priti. Um, and, and potentially, again, a lot of questions arising from that very expansive um, discussion of, of, of the lack of infrastructure and uh, the impact of climate change. Uh, folks do remember Slido is there to, to take your questions. We can pick up after our final speaker, uh, which is, uh, uh, she is Jordana Romalo, uh, and she will explore the centrality of home and housing to women's experiences of climate change. So over to you, Jordana. Thanks very much, Karen. Um, and thank you to the first two speakers. So I think actually a lot of 
the what I'm going to be speaking about today is going to summarize and kind of reconfirm a lot of what both uh, Virginie and Priti have have mentioned. Um, and actually, before I, I kind of jump into the significance of, of home and housing, um, I when I was thinking about this, actually, I was really thinking like, what what are the impacts? Like, why is it that women are more more vulnerable or more at risk from from global warming? And um, I think the first thing that kind of jumped out at me was uh, kind of thinking more about um, women's role in agricultural production. And this is something that that both Virginia and Priti have mentioned um, in, in their slides. And I just wanted to drill down a little bit more on that because I think it's, it's quite important. Um, and then I'll move into my arguments around uh, other aspects of labor and how labor is connected to the home and how this in turn affects uh, socio-spatial vulnerabilities of women and girls in particular. Um, so in terms of uh, women's uh, dependence and involvement on small-scale ag agriculture. So um, around the world, women are actually, they constitute the majority of, um, of small-scale producers. Um, and in, it's, it's estimated that they make up, <clears throat> pardon me, between 60 and 80% of the agricultural workforce uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa and Asia. And although the majority of women um, involved in small-scale subsistence agriculture is kind of, the, their activities are geared very much towards meeting household consumption needs. Um, small-scale farming actually accounts for 80% of global food production. So we're talking like the, the majority of food production is being um, delivered by, by these, uh, these women. Um, and they're doing this uh, predominantly, as I said, for consumption, but also they'll be able to sell uh, whatever's left um, uh, at, at local markets. Um, and we know that agriculture is greatly affected by uh, global warming and related heat waves, droughts, flooding, rising levels of pests and yield reducing diseases, um, especially I would say in uh, many parts of sub-Saharan Africa where it's estimated that only 4% of land is actually irrigated. And I think uh, both Priti and Virginie uh, gave some really nice examples and went into a bit more detail on that. So I will, uh, I'll skip over that part of my presentation. Um, it's also worth noting that despite women's key role in global food production, women and girls are much more likely to go hungry than, the, than their male counterparts. And again, Priti mentioned this uh, in, in some of her slides. And there's very dramatic evidence, actually, uh, unfortunate evidence that uh, gender gaps, gaps in food security have actually widened quite significantly over the course of the pandemic. And so what this tells us is that in moments of crisis, it's women and girls that fare the least well. And this is again connected back to uh, gendered um, inequalities and power relations and, and also the norms that kind of define who has access to uh, resources within, within the household. Um, uh, but also beyond that, also just thinking about how these norms affect and these power relations affect women's access to and control uh, over land, uh, how this restricts their inheritance rights, their access to credit, and also to income generating opportunities more generally. So yeah, I wanted to share this thought because I think uh, first and foremost, I think um, the impact of climate change on agricultural productivity, which we're seeing everywhere, um, and specifically women's reliance on this sector for their everyday sustenance, but also as a source of income, um, makes, I think this is a really key reason why I would argue women and girls are uh, more affected by uh, global warming um, than, than men and boys. Um, the second part of my argument, uh, I want to kind of turn more to uh, feminized responsibilities for social reproductive care work. And again, um, 
Pretty kind of talked about that quite extensively. So I'm gonna, I'm not gonna repeat where I can, I'm gonna jump over that. But um, just to talk through what we mean by social reproductive care work. So we're here, I'm talking about um, the labors that are connected with um, meeting your household's immediate needs and maintaining life and survival, both on a daily basis and, and into the future, you know? So this includes, um, as, as Virginie mentioned, not just uh, physical labors, but also emotional labors associated with, with feeding or clothing your family, as well as caring for children, for the elderly, um, the sick, and for communities more, more generally. Um, and this is where the home becomes really fundamental to thinking through uh, gendered vulnerabilities and exposures to various types of environmental risk connected with, uh, with global warming. Um, and, and again, uh, thinking about divisions of labor, um, as Priti has gone into extensive detail, uh, many of these reproductive tasks are intimately dependent on water and wood and other kind of fuel sources, um, which, we, which we know are affected by, by global warming in the same way that, that uh, agriculture is. Um, so uh, just to kind of add a bit more context to uh, what Priti has already said in the context of India. So I wanted to draw your attention to a survey that was conducted um, across 45 developing countries, which found that women and children uh, were carried the primary responsibility for water collection in 76% of the households surveyed and were required to walk an average of 3.7 miles per day to collect water. Um, in Sub-Saharan Africa, one round trip to collect water uh, took them an average of 33 minutes in rural areas and 25 minutes in urban areas, which, which adds up and contributes to these time burdens that, that Priti was mentioning. Um, and kind of linking now again to Virginie's presentation, um, you know, under circumstances of conflict or disaster, um, where wash and other basic infrastructure may have been damaged um, or just not not available, uh, these trips take a considerably larger amount of time, right? So there's a huge time burden, um, you know, emotional burden that's connected with uh, these infrastructural deficiencies, uh, water in particular. Um, the lack of affordable and accessible uh, water, sanitation, hygiene infrastructure is also uh, associated with heightened exposure to gender-based violence. Again, uh, both Virginie and Priti have gone into detail on this, so I won't uh, I won't go into it myself. Um, but I think just to kind of sum this up, um, it is women and girls more than men and boys that are really bearing. The, the brunt of the burden for these infrastructural deficiencies, um, and especially for deficiencies that are connected to, to water. Um, and water is intimately affected by global warming. So um, hopefully that's a key takeaway that you'll take from this, uh, this discussion. Um, the other aspect of, uh, of social reproductive care work that I think is important to acknowledge is women's involvement in what I would term invisible labors of disaster risk management and resilience building. And this is especially um, so in the context of informal settlements. Um, my research in the Philippines uh, in, in informal settlements that were uh, considered danger zones because they were uh, greatly affected by, by fires, floods, um, and so on, found that it was women more than men who took on responsibility for uh, waste management activities. So cleaning up uh, where state services uh, weren't available or kind of didn't 
didn't uh, meet the needs of the local community. This affects flood management. It also affects uh, incidents of dengue, malaria, and so on. Um, but women are also really actively involved in community organizing activities um, that kind of push back against um, state, a lack of state accountability, shall we say. And this is not just in the Philippines, but everywhere in the world you see uh, women very much at the helm of uh, community organizing activities and advocacy initiatives that are pushing for improvements, uh, particularly in informal settlements. So there's a number of different dimensions to gendered labor that I think, uh, you know, when things, when you're in a moment of crisis, uh, it's women who are carrying a lot of these, um, these deficiencies. Um, and lastly, I wanted to uh, focus in a little bit more on the socio-spatial health implications of gender roles and divisions of labor, uh, specifically in the context of urban poverty and informal settlements. And again, this is going to be uh, in many ways a reiteration of what you've already heard. Um, but uh, I think because I think key thing is like the significance of the home for women and for their social identities um, and gender norms that that make them more likely to be restricted to the home environment, uh, less able to travel out. And this is uh, particularly common in, in, in some contexts more than others. But by and large, women and children more than men um, are likely to be within the home environment. And that means that um, the various environmental um, and health hazards connected with informal settlements, which we've already discussed, um, th they're going to be much more exposed to them. And if we combine that with uh, socioeconomic um, forms of discrimination and you know what this means is that that they're less likely potentially to be able to to adapt or to find ways ways around that i also wanted to touch on um, the the fact that informal settlements because of uh overcrowded conditions and some of the materials that are being used to construct uh, homes in these neighborhoods um, can create heat islands uh, and, and what that is, it basically means that like the temperatures within certain parts of a settlement can be as much as seven to 10 degrees higher than areas outside of that. And I know Virginie said that there were, um, there's a lot of differing opinions on this, but I think, you know, if we think about many contexts where, you know, the temperatures are already tropical and like, you know, 50 plus degrees in cities, and then you add another 10 degrees onto that. And you think about gender divisions of labor and restrictions on mobility, which means that women are probably going to be more confined than others to these spaces. Um, there are huge health implications there. And if we add uh, open fires to the mix, for example, or stoves, um, and again, who tends to be kind of uh, behind those stoves? It's women and girls. I think, you know, the point's quite clear um, that, that there are key health implications there, uh, not just connected with heat, but also with uh, air pollution, which is recognized uh, as one of the, the main sort of silent killers of women and girls in, uh, in developing country contexts. Um, so, a few concluding points, I think, to try to tie all, all three of our discussions together in many ways. I think, um, you know, when we think about global warming, climate change, and uh, the vulnerabilities and opportunities connected with that, I think it's really, really important that we approach risk, uh, not as like independent events, but as a continuum, uh, ranging from kind of these extreme events to more slow onset and invisible um, hazards that, uh, you know, will that different people are exposed to on the basis of, of social identities, social norms, uh, mobilities, the housing conditions that they're in, uh, the livelihoods that they engage in, so on and so forth. Um, I also think uh, 
that we need to really recognize the interdependence between risk and infrastructure, a point that Priti made beautifully, so I don't need to harp on about that, um, but also the links between risk, infrastructure, and social reproduction, um, and how all of these are really intimately connected to relations of oppression, dispossession, and environmental degradation, which are in turn not only gendered, but also racialized, classed, and, and co-constitutive of, of one another. Um, and I think this these are points that that each of the presentations have uh, have reinforced. So, on that note, I will leave it there, and uh, yeah, look forward to some questions. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jordana. Um, and uh, so we have had three really rich um, uh, presentations. Um, I remind you again: submit questions via Slido, sli.do, followed by the event code hashtag UCLClimate. Um, and let me go straight to the first question that came up. Um, how can we make women's invisible work related to disaster risk reduction more visible and recognized by policymakers and planners? Does anybody want to pick that up? I think that's a really great question. And it's something that I try to reflect on a lot. And I think it comes down the way that I've seen it and where the way I've tried to address it in my own research is through the kinds of methods that uh, that we use. And I, I mean this both for from a research perspective, but also a practitioner perspective. So um, recognizing that invisibility is closely connected with the biases that we hold as individuals and in our positionality in terms of what we see in the so-called field or what we see in front of us. Right. Um, and so I think one way that we can render uh, these invisible labors visible is to engage with individuals uh, in a way that makes it perhaps more um, easy for them to 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 tell us their stories, to to showcase you know what they are doing, um, how they're affected by different uh, events or situations, and so um, thinking through the politics of knowledge production um, to make uh, the bodies and the infrastructures that are carrying these burdens kind of come to the fore, um, rather than thinking a lot about the more technocratic approaches. Um, Thank thanks. you. Uh, Virginie, do you want to add anything to that? Just to add to Jordana's um, point is to say that uh, in the methods that we use, the, the focus should be always to disaggregate the data that is collected by gender, by age, by ethnicity, etc. And there are there are lots of guidelines that already tell academics how to do this or practitioners how to do this. But it's not just collecting this disaggregated data, it's then to analyze it with a gender perspective, otherwise it's meaningless. And that's where often um, the, the, the information is missing. Um, so it means constantly systematically asking who is telling this uh, story, who is reporting this, uh, experience and being mindful of who has a voice and who doesn't. Um, this is what the perspective of a gender analysis uh, aims to do, and that's something that we all ought to do, um, regardless of the sector and discipline that we work in. Pretty, do you want to add anything? Yes, very briefly. So I think disaggregated data is excellent. Um, I think I would take it a step ahead to say we need to better evidence uh, the quantum of invisible work and the implication that has for health educational outcomes. So if we are able to develop this evidence base better to bring to policymakers, I hope that would shift kind of the thinking and approaches that we have. So in a, in a way that takes me to the, uh, to the next question, 
um, which is, um, uh, uh, does gender need to be at the forefront of any attempts to tackle climate change? Um, and what needs to change to prioritize gender inequalities in, in, in the whole climate discussion? Um, Priti, would you like to pick up on that for a start? Yes, so I think, and uh, as an engineer, we come across a lot of examples uh, where, and I can give you some examples which are well known, where you're testing cars, but when you're testing cars, you're testing them on dummies which are six foot tall. Um, so uh, you find that in events of accidents, women are most at risk. So basically, um, in engineering as designers, we have a lot of discussions around having more inclusive and diverse teams when it comes to design and planning interventions, so that when we co-create those solutions, and when we test those solutions, we have those diverse perspectives and diverse day-to-day -day lived experiences, which come to the fore. Um, especially, for example, in infrastructure design, um, the experiences of using different types of cookstoves will be different depending um, on where you are and what type of layouts you have and what heights uh, the cookstoves are set at, etc. So I think it's really uh, having those diverse teams um, at the outset to plan and design interventions and solutions. Great. And Virginie, you made a strong point that um, that risk is very much linked to occupations and gender roles. It, with, with that in mind, um, do, you, do you also think that um, uh, gender needs to be at the forefront to tackle climate change? Yeah, absolutely. And in two ways. Um, first, and I think that was very well articulated by Jordana, it's this focus on health and um, social reproduction and, and health um, occupational role is a way to uh, understand those invisible roles and contribution to, to household well-being. And what when we compare um, the health sector or public health compared to other sectors, who benefits from public funding? It's never public health. It's always big infrastructure, uh, fossil fuel subsidies, and the rest of them. So the intention on health is a way to bring back gender equality or inequalities and make them visible. But the other aspect where gender is a powerful lens is to look at who make decision about and sustainable development pathways is to look at um, who are the world leaders what type of decisions do they make about the use of public resources to look at who are the negotiators of, of different cop each year each year we show that there is a lack of parity in, in the, who is making decision and this lack of parity is really important because there's evidence that suggests that in some countries where there are more women parliamentarians, there are better laws for the environment to protect the environment. So it matters a huge amount to consider gender equality. Thank you very much. And Jordana, is there anything you'd like to pick up here before I move on? Uh, not particularly. Just to say that, like, I think in it's not just about gender but it's about that like a feminist lens or a lens if you're not comfortable with the term feminism I imagine most people on this call are but like for those who might not be or are trying to sell it it's about being able it's it's a way or a set of methods and theories that enable us to unpack power relations whether that's at the geopolitical scale that Virginie just mentioned 
or at the scale of the household and the everyday kind of interactions of people with their environment, with infrastructure. And I think that that focus on power inequalities is absolutely fundamental to a more kind of just uh, sustainable future uh, connected with um, climate adaptation. Thank you. Um, we have a, a more specific question now. Uh, does climate change impact women more so than men here in the UK? as well as in the global south. Uh, does anybody want to pick that up specifically? Anybody have uh, any data on that? I don't have data from the UK, but I can share evidence from Sweden where during an episode of very cold weather and snowstorms, the public authorities of a particular city, I can't remember the name, noticed that there were more accidents from affecting women. And the reason is because more women were taking their uh, kids to school by walk. And therefore, um, and when they were, the city were, were peeling roads from snow, they were focusing on the roads, but not on the pavements. And so the pavement became a huge source of hazards for pedestrians who were in majority women. So that's, that was a very interesting uh, perspective from the so-called global north on how some people might be infected differently by the same hazards. And again, I think that links to the, the gender roles and relations um, which dictate, uh, you know, the patterns by which people live, both in time and space, which then have implications, um, uh, obviously, for the impact of climate change. Pretty, did you want to come in here? Uh, yes. So, I mean, whilst I have focused quite extensively on global south and slums, but the harsh reality is in UK, uh, we also have challenges around poverty and homelessness. And within the subgroups, um, due to poor housing and infrastructure and environmental conditions, you'll find there'll be disparities over um, kind of the burden of work, the burden of household activities and roles, and those who are most adversely affected. And once again, it's going to be the women who are most adversely affected. A general question here, um, has the pandemic exacerbated these climate change inequalities in any way? Uh, could I just call on one of you to, to take that and maybe we can cover one or two more questions before we close. Anybody have a view on whether the pandemic has, has exacerbated? I, I would say that, that it has um, based on, uh, and I'm, I mean, I think, Thinking of um, many of the, the people that I'm that I'm in contact with in the Philippines, who I was in contact with over the course of the pandemic, I know that um, with any kind of care work, and particularly when it's relating to to health and well-being, um, women, because of everything that we've just discussed, are the ones who who find their responsibilities heightened. Um, and then when you add a kind of a lockdown into the mix, and again, thinking of the many people that are living in communities where access to basic infrastructure is limited, your ability to, to wash your hands or to, to access water, um, you know, soap, all these things is, is greatly inhibited. And again, when we think about gendered roles and divisions of labor, who does that affect more? It's, it's women. And when people get sick, who does that affect more? It's women and girls, right? So the pandemic, like any crisis, has uh, exacerbated many of the challenges connected with, uh, I would argue, with uh, reproductive labors. So we've talked a lot about um, these, in, obviously, with gender inequalities and the link to disaster, but 
Under what conditions, the question here, under what conditions might a disaster allow for challenges to gender inequalities? Does anybody want to pick that up as the final question? Thank you for that question. I've tried to grapple with it um, a few years ago to try and understand if disaster could become those windows of opportunity to quote others who, who've termed this. And it was actually difficult to find evidence that it does because often opposite, it, it reinforces social norms that confine um, um, women to certain roles and spaces. And it uh, reemphasized discrimination against women, girls, and gender minorities. And the reason it does so, it's because it aggravates stresses um, that, that um, alter the functioning of, or the so-called normal functioning of societies. So at the same time, the, my research in Chad shows that with the intervention of humanitarian actors, actually new services can, be, uh, can become available in places where they were not existing before. I'm thinking about uh, uh, protection services for women um, victim of abuse, uh, medical uh, services, legal services to provide justice. Um, this can be brought, bring, brought in because of um, the response to disaster, not by the disaster itself. Thank you so much. Um, and I'd like to thank all three speakers. Unfortunately, we have a couple more questions there, and I know that the conversation could probably go on all afternoon. But unfortunately, we only have a couple of minutes left in which I'd like to thank all three of our speakers today for raising such important and very, very rich discussions and debates. Thank you so much. Uh, um, and all, really, I think generating a lot of questions and, and a demonstration of the really interesting work that's going on here um, at UCL. Um, I'd also like, just before we close, um, to mention that the next lunch hour lecture will take place on Thursday, the 9th of December. Uh, the topic will be towards net zero. Uh, life cycle assessment as a decision-making tool for low-carbon solutions. And again, this is a lunchtime session from one to two. So do join that. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you again. So thank you again to our speakers for today. Um, thank you to the audience and for your very interesting questions. Um, and take care and look forward to seeing you again soon. Bye-bye all. <laughs>